Uh. <laughs> are we are we recording right now? Yeah. I didn't know if it was like an official. We need like one of those movie things or the clapper. Like, yeah. Like yeah. and scene. Um. So yeah, I was thinking about it earlier, and would love to start out. Um. This is Dave and Steph. <laughs> Happy wifey. Uh. Would love to start out. Um, having you just explain, and uh, obviously we're not experts, so you know you don't know perfectly, and neither do I. But just what EDMR is? EMDR. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> EDM. Wait, really? EDMR? EMDR. Oh, e- yeah. Oh, I thought I said it's, that. It stands for eye movement. I had to Google this because I can never remember. Mm. And also, um, one of the words is really hard to say, so sometimes I have to read it to say it properly. <laughs> Eye movement, desensitization, Mm -hmm. and reprocessing therapy. So it's just a therapy modality method that um, I feel like it's not, it's becoming more common from what I've seen, but it's it's kind of still not as like mainstream as a lot of other stuff like CBT um, and other, other therapy methods of that sort. Yeah. So talk me th- through like how you came to meet your current therapist and what the experience has been like with her so far. Well, in the past, I've you know I've been to therapy before, um, and and most of the therapists in the past have just been talk therapy, um, you know the classic cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which is helpful because I am a person who tends to suppress my emotions and bottle things up a lot to a point that don't really have access to those emotions and I don't know how to get them out of my brain either and so they either get shoved all the way down to where they're inaccessible or they become this like swirling tempest in my brain Mm. but because in the past and in my childhood I never had people to talk to and I never had like healthy outlets to get all of these thoughts, emotions, et cetera, out of myself, they kind of just get to the point where I become paralyzed. So in the past, talk therapy has been really helpful because it was a safe space with someone who was trained in, you know, helping me work through these things and think through these things. Plus I've read a lot of self-help books and all that kind of stuff. And the first, the first few times I went to talk therapy, it was really helpful for me because I had never had any sort of processing of what's happening in my brain. So it, it opened me up to a lot of connections to why I am the way I am based on stuff that's happened in the past, yeah. which also opened me up to be able to talk to it, talk to other people about those things, you know, primarily you, because you're one of the people that like, I really do feel safe to talk to stuff or talk to you about stuff that is really painful for me. And that I'm increasingly realizing is more painful than I even thought. <laughs> so anyway, it, it got to the point where I would make a little bit of progress with talk therapy, would feel really good, feel like I kind of had a handle on what's going on with my brain on myself. And I would just fall back into the same cycle of either falling into a depression or feeling stuck, not understanding Almost like I, I watch myself do things and not understand why I was doing them because logically, rationally, I, I, I have a lot of knowledge about 
the function of things and and a lot of knowledge about what is happening in my brain to to an extent but I couldn't like apply that knowledge to actually help me so I would just keep falling back into a cycle of getting paralyzed wanting to avoid things not being able to talk to you or reach out to people and and kind of like shrinking in on myself I was realizing that I think I need something a little bit deeper than just talk therapy because I know so much and and the more you go to talk therapy the more you know but I need ways to apply that and a way to actually like physically you know neurologically change my brain and whatever is happening because there's times I'll watch those things happening and watch myself saying things or doing things and I'm like this is completely insane (laughs) (laughs) why the fuck am I doing this because it feels like I'm almost trapped in my own body yeah and I, I, it's like it's somebody else that's doing it or saying it. Exactly. Exactly. Because there is there is that part of me that's like, I know that this is quote unquote wrong or I shouldn't, I guess, not that I shouldn't feel this way, but there's no like rational reason why I am feeling so upset about whatever the thing is. Yeah. Um, and so there's something else going on that I can't access just by talking about it. So my, your sister, Sam, she... And I are really similar in a lot of ways. And we had been going to some talk therapy, some therapists here in Florida that were like, okay, it was still helpful. But for me, I I was getting to the point where I was kind of spinning my wheels and her therapist actually referred her to this new therapist we've both been seeing who does EMDR. And Sam reached out to me and was like, I think that you might be that you might click with this lady and that this might help you because it's really helping me. And like even just reading through the therapist's bio on psychology today, just her whole ethos and and like you could tell she's passionate and she she is really like solution-based and I liked the way that she talked about how she helps people. It was very, very in line with like what I was looking for. So I... <laughs> I actually have seen her like four times and we've done a lot of talking up until this last session where we really started to actually do like start an EMDR session. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And essentially like what it, what the the therapy practice does is it helps you, you go through and you try to, find the source of a traumatic moment or something that has created a certain belief about yourself. Um, You know, something from your past that is still affecting you today and help desensitize you Mm. about it. And then eventually reprocess it with a more positive emotion or a positive, I don't know what you would call it, like a, response maybe yeah yeah response or just yeah that works again i just barely started doing emdr so i'm super noob status i don't really know a lot about it yet just what i've experienced and the you know brief amount that i have read about it so in that it's coupled with uh like external stimulus a bilateral stimulation so it's it's something that is stimulating like two like each side of your brain essentially Mm. so like you can it's most commonly 
eye movement. So she has like this light bar that the light will bounce back and forth. And as she's talking you through the memory, you will watch the light. And it kind of like brings your brain to like this other place where you can, it's like, it's almost like hypnosis, but not quite. And there's also other ways to do it. Like you can do it with sound. You can do it with like touch. Like she had me holding these little thingies that vibrated in my hand and it would like each hand would vibrate individually back and forth. And it, it, it just, it grounds you, mm. but also distracts you from kind of the moment so you can focus on the memory. Interesting. It, like, I'm trying to think of, I can think of a comparison to how it feels, but it, it just kind of gets you in the zone, I guess is like the simplest way that I can describe it. Yeah. So this first time that I did like a real, we, we locked into a memory do you want me to like go into specifics yeah, of the memory? Love, yeah. Okay. So to, to even get to the bottom of like the memory to focus on, I don't even remember exactly what we were talking about. Oh, I was, I was talking to her about like moments where I'll get really like irritable or really anxious about something for seemingly no reason. And a lot of the time it happens when I'm around other people, like, for example, if like you and I go to the grocery store together and there is something about the trip there or something that's like on my mind or maybe you're doing something that's kind of annoying, <laughs> but like my reaction to it is way out of proportion to what the thing actually is. Mm. Um, instead of being able to really cope with that, I, I get very shut down and very like turned in on myself mm. which also triggers some guilt and some shame because I start feeling like you're not gonna enjoy being with me because I'm being pissy <laughs> and bitchy but for no reason mm. seemingly and I have no explanation because it's there's just something that's being triggered from an old memory or an old you know situation yeah. that is causing me to feel that way and it c isn't even like the old memory is like an exact replica of what's happening. Right. It's just something about that moment is making me feel something that felt really shitty when I was a kid. Yeah. So essentially we, we had to really break it down and it boiled down to a core belief that I feel like I'm not good enough. Mm. And so I have a fear in, in some moments there's something that's triggering me that is making me feel like, you're going to be disappointed in me and that's because I'm not good enough as a person. Right. And so what she had me do was to start thinking back to like uh, memories where I could feel something similar to that. So like when you, when you're feeling, when I was feeling something as a kid, that's similar to that, like pent up irritation, frustration, et cetera. Um, or, or anticipation that I'm going to disappoint someone, whatever it is. Like, think of, like, the earliest time you can remember. And so I think the very first memory I was able to pull up was maybe mm, sometime when I was, like, 10 or 12, somewhere in that age range. She's like, okay, now do you remember anything earlier than that? So we're trying to go as far back as we can because we want to find, like, as close to the first instance that this belief started developing in your head 
you know, and, and the association with that. Mm-hmm. So eventually after, you know, I cannot really remember anything. I really can't remember a lot of stuff very clearly after like fifth or sixth, fifth or sixth grade, at least right now. It's seeming that that is going to change the more I do this. Mm. But um, we finally settled on a memory. And it was really, really vague at first of parent-teacher conferences. and Traumatic for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Parent-teacher conferences. And so she had me, because those those triggered, like you said, they are traumatic for everyone, of course. And I think that... For me, they were, I was particularly sensitive to them because I was always like pegged as a gifted kid and I'm the oldest sibling in my family. So I was always, you know, supposed to be responsible and be the example for other people. And I think that I'd also just had, I was a really perceptive child. And so I was really good from a young age at like making myself small and quiet which adults like because that makes you an easy kid. Mm. But I learned that like that's that was safe and what people wanted. Um, I don't know where I was going with that specifically. Actually, anyway. can I can I interrupt and sure. and actually ask? Do you think that some of that the learning that being small and quiet is what you know adults want came not just from school but like at home or maybe maybe even at like you know friends' houses with their parents or you know or where where do you think even that came from? Yeah, I think it was, it was probably home because actually school was the opposite. Like mm. one of the things I remembered about the parent-teacher conferences was I was I always got good grades and I always did well in school pretty easily. Uh, but the one thing that was pretty consistently remarked on was that I was quiet and they would wish I'd wish I would participate more, which was at odds with either. Like, I'm not actually sure. I'm not sure if it was nature or nurture that I tended to be a quiet kid because something that happened before this memory could have turned me into a quieter kid because it's something I learned. Yeah. But, you know, my my dad was very much like a, you know, stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about, dad. So I, and I don't recall, like, how early that started, but I'm, I'm assuming it started early enough that it affected me to the point that I learned very quickly that like I needed to hide my emotions because they were not acceptable. Yeah. They weren't okay. And also like, I think it was challenging because I was, I was a pretty smart kid that I, and I feel like I had like opinions and convictions even at an early age, but also like, my dad, because of how his dad was, his dad was even more authoritarian than he was, but he was very much like, I'm the parent, so you listen to me, you don't have opinions. Right. And so I just kind of learned to shut up because it was safer and easier and made me more acceptable. Yeah, those moments pass more quickly as opposed to pushing back and then they go on for, you know, minutes or hours. Yeah, and, you know, when you're like three, four, five and you try to push back, if your parent is not a very patient parent or understanding parent and they tend to be emotionally explosive themselves, like that's scary. Yeah. So it's like, I just don't like, 
I'm scared to push back. I'm scared to stand up for myself because I don't know what my parents going to do. Yeah. Something I we've talked about a lot is that I'm the youngest in my family and you're the oldest. Yeah. And the such contrasting, I mean, our parents are different for sure, but just the, you know, the order that you fall in, you know, the kids in your family makes a pretty big difference a lot of times. Yeah. Oldest caregivers tend to feel like they need to be example setters, those types of things. Youngest, <laughs> wild, wild children. Wild yeah. children. <laughs> um, but something I was just thinking about, some of the stuff you've been sharing is, I would imagine by the time you're three, four, five, if you've if you've got a traditional family with multiple kids, traditional Utah family with multiple kids that are two to four years apart, just as you're starting to develop like a lot of personality and have more push, pushback and conversations with your parents, they've now got another child who's a baby yeah. that they're also trying to take care of and they don't have the patience. Whereas when I'm a baby and I've got three siblings that are older than me, my parents probably just pawned me off to them. I mean, my <laughs> parents probably went weeks without talking. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, but, but honestly, they get a lot more help at that stage. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously when you've got older kids, that's a different kind of chaos as well. But overall, I would say as a youngest in a relatively normal, healthy household, uh, just, you know, no extremes, you know, two parents who are working their best to take care of their kids. You've got four kids. You make enough that you can get by. Um, I'd imagine the youngest gets much more casual treatment because of that. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, very different expectations for sure, which it's crazy how much that can like just shape your entire childhood, like knowing that you have this freedom or you don't, you know, even if my birth order was the same and I still was the oldest child, like I wonder just if my, my parents were a little bit more emotionally mature, like how much that would have changed kind of like the trajectory of my life. Mm. Which I can't go back and change it. So I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting here wallowing or feeling sorry for myself. But it's just an interesting thing to think about of like, if I did have a secure attachment, you know, to my parents and I had different, didn't also have like, what if I didn't have, you know, Mormon church stuff to, to contend with either? Because I felt like that really just compounded a lot of other things that were really heavy for me as a kid of like, I have to you know, live up to the expectations of my parents and set an example for my children or my siblings, not only academically, but also at home. And also as far as like being a good church going kid, you know, it just was a lot. So, but back to kind of like the, the process, the EMDR process. So we locked onto this memory of like, it was, I think I vaguely felt like it was first or second grade. I couldn't quite tell because it was more just like the general feeling around parent-teacher conference, but I feel like I could imagine myself at that age in my elementary school gym cafeteria because they'd like set up the tables around the edges and we'd go to each teacher. So she had me just, you know, she gave me the little like hand vibrator things. Buzzies. Buzzies. And, you know, just sat there and closed my eyes and she just had me think about just think about it, like put myself into the shoes of that memory as much as possible. Imagine myself sitting there with my mom next to me and the teacher in front of me and just think about it and like see where my brain goes. It's very like open ended kind of exercise because you kind of just want to see like what does your brain bring up? Like emotions, thoughts, 
where did your brain go after this, etc. So first, as I was sitting there, I really didn't have a lot like coming up. It was like the the memory was still materializing in my brain. Mm. And I couldn't like vividly picture it. It wasn't like this actual movie in my mind, but like, you know, a vague sense of things that are happening. So after like, you know, when you're when you're in the process, you can't exactly tell how long in between each time that she was stopping to ask how I would feel, but I'm imagining it was probably about 30 seconds. And every 30 seconds or so, she would stop the buzzies in my hands and, you know, ask me, like, what's coming up? What's coming up? Again, very, very open-ended. And I also also realized through this whole process that I have a very hard time answering things when I don't know the correct answer. And especially when there's not a correct answer, (laughs) I get really paralyzed because I'm I'm assuming that there's something specific that the person is looking for from me, which that's co- codependency, which we'll talk about some other time maybe. But yeah, <laughs> so one, it was it was hard to kind of lock onto the feelings and what was coming up at first. She's asking you questions like, "How do you feel?" or "How do you feel about this?" and you're like, "I don't know." And then you start to get that paralyzed. Is that what you're yeah, okay. yeah, and she wouldn't even get that specific. She would just mm-hmm. ask what's coming up Mm. leave it very open-ended which I think that is hard for me because there's not a lot of direction to it so it's like am I saying the wrong thing am I saying the thing that's not going to help her know how to help me (laughs) I don't know what to do but you know so that's like a secondary level of things going on on top of the memory Mm -hmm. uh so we you know the first time she asked me that I just kind of was explaining the scene because it was starting to materialize in front of me so I'm like I can see my mom in my peripheral I can see my teacher in front of me I can kind of see the gym slash cafeteria like I can remember what it looks like she's like okay we'll go with that and that's like all she would say every time Mm. as we were going back into the memory right so it's just a very open-ended like you just let your brain guide you because your brain knows a lot of stuff (laughs) And you don't know that it knows a lot of stuff. So as it progressed, it was the weirdest thing. It, was, it was, felt like my body was like taking over, I guess, because I'm so like mind focused and I, I, I'm very like in my head a lot as we like went through each little round of her having me focus on the memory and see what's coming up for me. I could just feel my body viscerally reacting to remembering this memory that seems so innocent. It's just parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> But obviously, like, this was a core, like, this is triggering, like, a really core wound of mine because I I could, like, feel my stomach and my chest getting tight mm. and, like, could feel my face getting ugly and screwing up. And she's, like, watching me with my eyes closed, <laughs> making this pouty face. I know I looked <laughs> hideous, but I just started thinking about, like, that antici- the anticipation of, like, what's my teacher going to say? Mm. And even though, like, I know I got good grades, but it's, like what is she going to say that isn't good enough? And like, in what way am I going to disappoint my mom? Mm. And then wondering like, is she going to be disappointed in me or is it going to be okay? There was like always this kind of uncertainty of even though I did good, is that good enough? Or does this like one failure or one part of me that needs improvement, is that enough to like make my mom think I'm a bad kid? Yeah. And like, it was like this combination of like being really 
really sad and really distressed because I was kind of in the moment. But then there was also a part of me that was looking at it all happening as my adult self and was just really sad for like imagining imagining me as like a little kid in front of me feeling that way. Yeah. You know. And I feel like even even the times where like I felt like I did not disappoint my my parents or my mom or whatever I also didn't necessarily get validation or or positive reassurance that I was okay the way I was so that always just left me wondering and I'd never realized that before that like not only did I worry about being a disappointment but I also like never got reassurance that I was not a disappointment and as soon as I lock, you know, as soon as your like little kid brain locks onto that, you start finding all these other ways that like just prove that you are not as good as they say you are, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I'm sitting there like crying and the buzzing in my hand, like what the fuck is going on? And yeah, I don't know. That was crazy. Cause I've never had, I've never had a therapy experience like that. So after we kind of like dove into the memory, we ran out of time that session. So we didn't complete the full round of EMDR. She said it was like an incomplete session, but she did warn me that like afterward, your brain basically will keep processing things as like after each session, after you go home, it's not like a one and done, like you process things while you were here. Now your brain gets to shut off and you don't think about it till your next session. Like your brain goes through a whole bunch of stuff and she's like, you'll be really tired and... You know, I can't remember what else she told me. And not that I was not like, not that I was skeptical, but I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then for two days, I was pretty tired afterward. And I wasn't like thinking of a lot. It just kind of was like brain was mush and I had worked a little bit. So I was also tired from working. And then after my brain like had time to recover, all of these memories started cropping up mm-hmm. that I have not thought about in a long time. It was super weird because I've thought for so long that I'm like, oh, all these memories from my childhood are just lost because I don't know, I'm just getting old. My brain's dying. Who knows? But it seems that a lot of it just is suppressed, honestly. So I started getting all these like seemingly random memories, but I'm sure that they tie in some way, like memories of like working in the library as a sixth grader, like volunteering to help put books away. And then I also like volunteer helped to work in the office in my middle school over the summer And then I remembered like my childhood best friend and then another friend that I haven't thought about in a while. And yeah, it just was, it's just really bizarre. And then all of that started to weigh on me because I started thinking of all these connections of like that feeling of not feeling good enough and seeing so many other places that that was happening. And then I felt kind of depressed for a day. (laughs) And then we talked and talked through a lot of that. And I, I felt really good because there's so many of these emotions that plagued me as a kid that I had nowhere to go no one to talk to like nothing to get them out of my head or or feel seen or heard or accepted and so it was very therapeutic to be able to talk to you about all of those because for once I'd like did not feel alone because I'd like sorry I'm gonna cry um you know those were like a lot of like pain an emotion that I had to carry by myself pretty much until now. <laughs> so like even just having like you and my therapist, it's 
like two more people than I ever had. And it's crazy to like think about all of, I don't know, all of the stuff that I like went through alone essentially. And that's like, I didn't completely crash and burn. I did a little bit in high school, which I thought about today, but you know, overall it still turned out (laughs) all right. But it's just like, this is the kind of stuff that's been holding me back for so long. It's like, I'm just trapped by all of these old wounds that need to be healed. And like this poor little kid that needed, needed guidance and needed help, but was also capable and smart. So was kind of left to her own devices a lot because she could survive without help, but she still needed it because she was a kid. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's pretty crazy how, how powerful even just an incomplete session of EMDR was for me personally. It's definitely one of those things that might not work for everyone, but it seems like if you have any sort of, you know, trauma, it can be PTSD or it could be childhood trauma, stuff that has like specific situations or memories that are are causing you pain. Um, it seems like it's a really powerful, powerful method to help you work through that. Because sometimes you can't access that in any other way. Yeah. That was amazing. <clears throat> Hopefully it all made sense. I felt like I was just kind of rambling. It, it was awesome. And I don't know, it's, it's hard because I think of like, you know, pictures that I've seen of you as a kid and, you know, now just imagining you at, you know, this memory of parent teacher conference or other moments where it's just like you said, where you were perceived by adults as being a capable child um, and there are much less capable children in the room who need more attention. And so even though you needed the emotional support and the attention just as much, you know, as, as an adult, you know, you just, you go to the child that just seems like they need it the most and it'd be pretty easy to, to forget about the kid in the corner who's just like quietly doing their work and getting it done. Yeah. Yeah. Also, oh, you want to hear something I thought about earlier? Yeah. I I watched this other, I watched this YouTube video the other day that was, it was titled, uh, why gifted kids are special needs in a way. It's a, it's a, you know, catchy title to get you to click on it, but I thought it was really interesting and I've never read something that like so perfectly explained kind of my own I guess progression through my life Mm -hmm. (laughs) at at least like as a kid up until I I finished high school because like in high school I like I got really burned out my grades tanked I skipped school a lot um I felt like I had this like very visceral feeling that I did not belong um got really depressed like all these things happened in high school and I just was like oh I just I just was over school, whatever. I, mm. I don't know what happened. And I watched this video that basically explained, and it, it is kind of in line with what you're just saying about like people kind of forget about the quiet, good kid and think that they don't need help. Where like, you know, as a, as a kid, I was considered by my teachers to be a gifted kid. I was put into like the accelerated programs, especially in stuff like reading and writing and was just naturally always really, really good at school. And this guy was explaining that, like, because gifted kids are so good at at school, they don't have to try very hard. So they don't learn how to study. Hmm. They don't learn how to manage their time. They don't learn all of these skills that once you get to a point in in school that is 
actually challenging for you, they kind of just crumble uh, because they don't have they don't have the coping mechanisms to to get them through. Whereas like the kids who might not have been as good at school, they've had to put in a lot of work. So once they get to those harder you know parts of school, they they it's just more of the same. They're like, I've done this a million times. I know how to study. I know how to grind through this. And also like if I get a B or a C, it's not the end of the world. They're just doing their best and that's okay. Yeah. Whereas the gifted kids are like, if you don't get straight A's, then you're a disappointment. And then the first time you get a B in class, it becomes this like earth shattering failure. And especially once you get to a point where school is more challenging and you start getting B's and then you get some C's, you start getting all of this shame and this guilt that builds up because you've been told your whole life, you're smart, you're capable, you are like, you have so much potential, we can't see, wait to see what you do, and you can't keep up with everyone else, like what, you don't understand what's happening, so suddenly you start getting this huge gap between like what you've been told and who you imagine yourself to be, also kind of like your ego that's built up, because mm. by to- being told you're a gifted kid, you're automatically implied that you are above other kids and you're better than other kids. Like, even if no one ever actually says that, it's still just kind of the implication. And then what you're actually producing is is on the other end. Right. And so, like, the worse that gets, the more that you're, the more your shame builds. And I realized that's exactly what happened for me because he said it usually starts to decline in middle school when you start to get a few classes that are harder, you don't do as well, and then your self-esteem just crumbles. And I've never, I've never realized, like, it's not that I didn't care about school. I just was good at school and I put so much of my self-worth into being intelligent and being smart and capable and being academically gifted. And then once, once I wasn't able to produce to that level anymore, I, I felt like shit. And there was also no one I could turn to because I got to the point where I can't remember when this started, but like my grades would get so bad for me, I would intercept my report cards and hide them from my parents, like just trying to avoid it completely because I was so scared of how disappointed they would be. Like the first time I got a B in a class, I don't remember exactly what my mom said, but like it was basically like you can do better than that type of thing. Which is like classic parenting too, right? It's like on the, on the surface you think, yeah, that's that's how parents, quote unquote, like should react and respond. That's how, I don't know. But I think I think modern parenting has come a long way, understanding that like the emotional support and I don't know, you know, there's the conversation of how much are we turning every little kid into a snowflake? You know, that's super delicate. But at the same time, I think a lot of my success just like, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm super successful. I'm saying the areas in my life where I've been successful, I think a ton of that came from my mom's unrelenting emotional support. And, you know, my dad balanced that out pretty well with uh, much more just intellectually challenging conversations and things like that. So uh, that, that was helpful. But I mean, just my resilience certainly stems from that almost entirely. I, I rarely was afraid to go to my mom and talk to her about something. Um, nor was I terrified of her reaction. Probably more scared of it now as an adult. Yeah. Uh, because I, I actually care a lot more about disappointing her. And I your do. mom's sassier now. Yeah, she is. <laughs> yeah, she is. So it's interesting. Anyways. Yeah. Um, you did intercept report cards. It's okay. I, yeah. I got to the point where I was so, I was so ashamed of 
not doing well in school that I didn't even want my parents to see my report card and I didn't know how to explain to them what was happening to them. It just looked like I was being lazy yeah, or that I wasn't trying, not that I was genuinely struggling in any way. And I was also like too ashamed to tell anyone that I was struggling because I always have, I always had prior to that been able to do everything myself and I didn't need anyone's help. And a lot of the times, like that's another problem of mine that I'm trying to overcome of like, not being able to ask for help because there was rarely, rarely a place for my own needs. I was always having to cater to other people's needs, whether it was my siblings or suppressing my needs for the sake of like managing my parents' emotions or reactions to things and minimizing the pain that that would then inflict on me if they reacted poorly to something. And eventually like that, just the whole like, you know, starting out hiding report cards, it just spiraled into becoming completely apathetic towards school and being super depressed most of high school to the point that I started like skipping skipping classes and like I almost didn't graduate high school which a lot of, a lot of people don't know that I don't even know if my parents know that honestly <laughs> because I I hid everything that I possibly could I didn't want them to know because I just like that would confirm that I was just a piece of shit and <laughs> a failure and a disappointment to them but yeah, I would literally like, cause I had work release on one of my, one of my days. And then the other day, I don't know, I had like some bullshit classes like choir Yeah. and I just wouldn't go. <laughs> and then it was like two weeks before graduation and I had to do like a shitload of attendance school mm-hmm. and I pulled it together literally like the day before graduation. And then I got my cap and gown <laughs> and I didn't even, I didn't even want to walk, but I did because I'm the oldest and it's important to my parents. So I was like, whatever. Mm they want to be there they want to see me graduate cool yeah and I kind of wonder too if that's like you know that's a probably a big reason why I never went to college not only like I also didn't know what I wanted to do necessarily but I think deep down I felt like I wasn't good enough to go to college so yeah I don't know it's just it's just an interesting rabbit hole that I stumbled upon last night and then thought about more this morning and made all these connections of like oh my gosh this is exactly what happened to me Yeah. And like it explains so much and it just ties into everything else I'm starting to like make connections on too. Of a lot of my life has just been driven by like fear and shame and just emotions that I've had to suppress that I had no one to talk things out with or or who would just like listen to me and accept me for what was going on and who I was. Yeah. All right. I'm going to stop recording. Is that, is that going to be the sign out? <laughs> we just can't take this too seriously, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should say something in closing, like a closing prayer. Um, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thanks for doing my f- potentially first uh, officially go live podcast. Yeah. That was you're awesome. Welcome, boo. Love you. Love you too.